Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. Today I'm going to be discussing the A&E miniseries Coma with its director, Mikhail Solomon, ASC, and its director of photography, Ben Knott, ACS. Coma is an adaptation of Robin Cook's classic medical thriller, which was previously adapted in 1978 as a theatrical feature starring Michael Douglas and Genevieve Bougeot and photographed by the great Victor Kemper, ASC. Coincidentally, that version of Coma was directed by Michael Crichton, whose book The Andromeda Strain served as the basis for another miniseries helmed by Mikhail Solomon. Mikhail began his career as a cinematographer in Denmark before moving to Hollywood, where he served as director of photography on The Abyss, for which he was nominated for Academy and ASC Awards, Far and Away, and Steven Spielberg's Always. He did double duty on Backdraft as cinematographer and part of the visual effects team, work that scored him another Oscar nomination. In 1993, Mikhail turned to directing and met with even more acclaim, including Emmy nominations for The Andromeda Strain and The Company, an Emmy win for Band of Brothers, and DGA nominations for Unnatural History, The Andromeda Strain, and The Company. The company also earned cinematographer Ben Knott an Emmy nomination, as well as ASC and ACS awards. Ben's work on another miniseries directed by Mikhail, Salem's Lot, was nominated for an ASC award and won the ACS Cinematographer of the Year honors, a feat he repeated this year with his film Tomorrow When the War Began. Ben's other credits include Nightmares and Dreamscapes, Daybreakers, and See No Evil, and in addition to his television and feature work, he's an accomplished commercial cinematographer. It's a real pleasure to welcome Ben and Mikhail here to talk about their work together on Coma. Uh, before we talk about Coma, I actually want to ask about how you guys began working together in the first place. Um, preparing for today, I revisited Salem's Lot, which I really think is just one of the great miniseries of all time. It's, it's so terrific. And there obviously was a sort of perfect creative synergy between the two of you right from the start. So... How did you become aware of each other's work and start collaborating? Well, in a <laughs> typical Hollywood fashion, if you will, um, I was actually working with another uh, Australian cinematographer that didn't quite live up to the expectations. And uh, in a frenzy, we looked for somebody else. And, and you know, as, they, as I always say, the, the second weekend of the shoot, that's where things start to happen and that's that's what happened in this case uh, I met with I met with Ben and he was highly recommended I realized I had made a mistake with the original cinematographer Ben stepped in with zero prep and uh, it, we we fell into a great groove right off the bat and and uh, continued that uh, for for yeah up till now basically uh, we work with each other off and on I mean it all depends on you know where where shows go and availability. It doesn't always click, but um, um, I was very lucky to get Ben to shoot uh, Coma for me, and I felt completely comfortable. And I knew he he was in it for the long haul. It, it, we had done the company together since uh, Salem's Lot, and that was a in many ways a brutal shoot. We were well prepared though, but but um, I needed somebody that could really hang in there, not only creatively, but simply physically, too. And uh, I knew I could rely on Ben to do that. Well, Ben, what are your memories of coming on board Salem's Lot under those kind of, uh, you know, arduous circumstances with no prep? And Well, you know, obviously you do your homework. And I'd, I'd uh, researched Macau before, in the, in the three minutes before I got on the plane to go and meet him. And, um, you know, his credits read pretty big. 
And I think, interestingly enough, uh, if I'd had time to think about it, then you can, you know, that can become quite daunting working for another DP, essentially. But, you know, those, those, those circumstances are fantastic because you basically walk in on a win-win situation. You know, you really just, the, the, that, the inhibition is taken away from you because uh, you hit the ground running and the show has its problems and you can only, you can only contribute to fixing them. And and so I think that establishes a relationship where you know whereby the the two of us got on uh, because there was very little time to think about it. There was very little time to mull it over and prep. There was very little time to to do any prep. So essentially, um, uh, you know, the, the best idea won, and and that's how it's been ever since. Well, you mentioned the fact that you know you're working with another cinematographer i'm curious is it is it, is it a different experience uh working with a director who's also been a cinematographer i mean is, is it is there anything different about that from the normal or? it's a supreme advantage i mean it goes without saying because essentially you're never going to walk onto you're never going to walk onto a set that's uh that's front lit for without it being for a reason so essentially as dp i'm i'm pulled in to do prep and my biggest fear is that a director has gone off and scouted all the locations that that look have a particular look, but are completely unworkable. Uh, whereas working with Mikhail, you know that that you'll come into something that is a situation that is at least workable. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be it's going to work, uh, and and that's the advantage. Well, Mikhail, how do you feel that having been a cinematographer affects your directing style, if at all? Well, I, I don't see myself as a cinematographer once I'm working, and 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 people actually often ask, why don't you shoot it too? And I think it's it's like defending yourself in court. You have a, a fool for a lawyer because um, you can. For me, I want to protect the performances of the actors. I think especially there's maybe a little more focus on me for that because I am an XTP. And people say, yeah, the visuals are probably going to be okay, but what about performances? So I've always made an, an effort to be uh, very vigilant about ha uh, having the actors feel comfortable and know that um, they're always a little bit on guard saying, well, he, he's going to make this look great, but looking great is not what we're all about. We're about performances. So I, I, I rely on, on the DP to take care of things once we're all, uh, we all decide on where it's going to go. That said, though... Um, as Ben is saying, it, being a, a cinematographer puts stuff in the back of your head that you don't even think about. It's so ingrained in your spine, if you will, that uh, as he's just said about a front-lit set, I always try to plan locations with the DP if I have the advantage and the benefit of, of being able to scout with the DP. But these days they tend to save money on that too. But um, I always try to plan it to where the sun might be if it if it graces us with its presence. But uh, it's, that's very important to me. I, I simply found that I have a threshold that I can't really go below. And, and in, in this day and age, um, I think our biggest obstacle is lack of time. We are working so fast. And that's probably uh, the case with the other cinematographer. He was probably an, a very nice and very good cinematographer. He just didn't do it fast enough. And that, that's a requirement today. That's half of the job. And as a director, I think time management is 80% of what I do. I'm curious about 
the transition you made from being a cinematographer to being a director because you you were kind of you know at the top of your game as a DP in the early 90s and then it seems like there was a very definitive split where you did Far and Away and then it was like okay I'm not a cinematographer anymore now I'm a director and that's what you've been ever since and I'm wondering what what led to that decision and how that came about uh well first of all I I I felt I need to be challenged I I've shot a lot of uh shows as a dp back in europe as well a lot of them there were years when i shot five features a year in in scandinavia and because they're smaller and and you work fast and at one point i i i i was honestly i was afraid of getting bored and i felt i've been all these big shows and now what i just didn't want to fall back into comfortable uh high chair on the set and call the shots from there i i really wanted to be challenged and i certainly got challenged and it was a only in hindsight do i realize how big a decision it really was but i did turn down very very big shows um, um such a renamed unnamed uh, because they're they were shot by really good dps and they won awards for them but uh looking back i have no regrets um I felt it was the right thing for me to do at the time. And, and did you find when you went into directing that it was a huge challenge, or did you feel prepared for it, or was it harder than you thought it would be? Or? I think the the thing that I the the thing that I felt was harder was actually story. Um, as I'm, I was so comfortable on a set and have worked with so many great directors, and. Um, uh, whenever a director called on you as a DP for your opinion, I was I knew I always had an opinion about what was going on. That might may be performances or anything else like that, and I would always be ready to help with that. And um, as we all know, who are DPs, all we're there to do is to help the director make the show. And um, I realized one thing is looking up at the helm see the guy up at the helm and it it looks fairly easy and it looks very obvious what the answer should be but i also knew once you got there it's a whole different situation i knew a little bit from having directed commercials but and that's the same dynamic basically but the buck stop really stops there and and you can look around but you're pretty much alone because you have to make the decisions that's what you're hired to do and then you surround yourself with the best possible people because it makes your job easier. Well, let's move on to uh, Coma. Maybe for people who aren't familiar with the book or with the 1978 film, uh, could you give kind of a quick a quick summary of the premise of the movie? Yeah, uh, uh, the quick premise is something is afoot in a hospital. Uh, this young uh, med student comes into the hospital, realizes a lot of people, and uh, statistically, uh, too high a percentage of people are in comas or fall into comas during surgery. So she starts looking into what the cause might be, and, the, and, and she realizes she's meeting resistance, and then she gets really suspicious. Um, I, I can't tell you too much about it because I don't want to give anything away, but, but there is definitely a, a conspiracy afoot, and um, she eventually finds out what it's all about and it's a whole ride we take with her through um, the Jefferson Institute as it's called. Um, what happened with the story is the same thing that happened to me with Andromeda Strain. Andromeda Strain was a movie also from, from the 70s which um, was written by Michael Crichton um, but not directed by him. Robert, Robert, Robert Wise, yeah, I think. Maybe it was Robert Wise, yeah. And, Obviously, it was dated, and there was 
the whole technical side, the technological side had to be updated and we had to expand it to two times two hours because it was now a four-hour miniseries we were trying to do. That happened with Coma as well. We had to come up with B and C stories because we simply didn't have enough. But that was a great opportunity to expand on all these people. We have a fantastic cast in there. James Woods, uh, Gina Davis, Ellen Burstyn, and um, who am I forgetting? Richard Dreyfuss, and a young cast, wonderful young cast. Um, so we had to expand it, update the technology, and we also wanted to introduce a film language that was a modern film language. And so, uh, you know, when you guys, now that you've worked together several times, what are the initial conversations that you have when you decide to collaborate on a project? I mean, uh, you know, Ben, do you remember when Mikhail first approached you about this and what you guys discussed? Uh, it's a pretty simple conversation, really. It's, it's about contrast, essentially. And, you know, luckily, I think the very first meeting we had, the word contrast um, reared its head in the first couple of sentences. And as a DP, I mean, that, that's a very powerful tool, a very powerful storytelling tool and a very powerful visual tool, both colour, contrast and, and light and shade. And so essentially um, the rest of the answers come from, from sitting in a, in a van and going and seeing locations. And then the story reveals itself, the visual story reveals itself as the locations start to become locked in. And essentially, um, in the case of coma, um, because we had limitations, uh, and and with with television stories and these sorts of things, there is budget limitations and quite severe limitations in this case. Uh, essentially, we had to take what was offered to us as the lowest common denominator and then build around that. And in this case, it was fluorescent lighting um, that was available to us on all of our hospital sets. And to go through and swap out the tubes was an enormous undertaking. So then we had to think, well, how do we, how do we make this work for us instead of trying to fight against us and then build a philosophy around that. And uh, thankfully, the, the, um, the Alexa that we chose for the, for the project was a fantastic tool in dealing with you know, the green in, in um, fluorescent tubes and, and such. So essentially we take the lowest common denominator that we can't change and then build a creative philosophy around that. And that, I think that's the most effective way to do anything in, in, um, uh, in terms of photography, uh, cinematography, you know, really that you can get the best result uh, by, by approaching something that way. Uh, how about you know, when you're starting on a project like this? I guess in, in, the, in the case of Coma, I'm curious if either of you or both of you watched the original movie as either an influence or something to react against, or did you ignore it, or, you know? Uh, I had watched it a long time ago, long time ago, and I decided not to watch it because in reality we were, we were basing it more on Robin Cook's novel than on the original movie. There were some, some practical needs that had to be uh, dealt with, which is in the movie, uh, uh, the patients, if you will, are actually nude, except for you know, very skimpy something over genitalia basically uh, but we couldn't do that we, we couldn't have any nudity on TV and this is basic cable so we had to come up with a plan for that and and we did and worked out really great but uh, with regards to Ben's and my work together on it um, one of it, one of our big challenges was um, that we had to decide 
how do we build this institution, the Jefferson Institute, with basically, we had less money for sets than we have for an episode of normal TV. We had very little money. So I, um, our conversations with the producers became, okay, the only way to do this is find actual locations and piece it together. And, and that institute is pieced together of maybe 10 different locations. And to get a uniform look and make them all tie in together so people think they're in the same place, that was a, a big challenge for continuity, but also for lighting, uh, for everybody, for performance too. That was a challenge I think we really stepped up to, and I think it, it worked fantastic in the show, really well. Well, Ben, how did you meet? I mean, what were some of the solutions you came up with for that challenge when you have to match so many different you know, locations to basically pose as one location? I think if you carry iconic pieces through each location and that way you anchor the audience and, and they feel that this is part of another, of the same location, that's the obvious way of doing it, you know. And we did this through through lighting and through um, uh, set pieces and through wall colours and through doors and through things that, that, that tied set pieces together. Um, and also, you know, the use of, you know, Macau's uh, knowledge of visual effects and, and um, his relationship with a particular company, they were able to, you know, take halves of buildings and glue them onto car parks and, uh, and basically use that tool very effectively to, to tie the, the institute together. And, and our saving grace was we had a fantastic production designer, Corey Kaplan, who did an amazing job with, as I said, very, very little money. And um, then she was able to build the hero pieces that we needed, and then we replicated them in visual effects later on because without that, we'd been dead in the water. We wouldn't have been able to. For me, the challenge was obviously we had to beat the old movie. If we couldn't do that, we were dead. Uh, and I think we, I, I feel very good about that. I think we, we recreated it, but we also, we were respectful of the story, but we also uh, expanded on the story and made it a much bigger story. In many ways, it becomes about, um, uh, stem cell research it becomes about uh, organ uh, organ uh, 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 trading and there's a lot of more aspects to it which actually led to us being able to attract talent but who really th thought they saw something more in the script than was in the original book. Well it's interesting you touched earlier on the fact that with both this movie and Andromeda Strain you're dealing with adaptations of material that's kind of technologically oriented but is 30 or 35 years old and so what are you know what are some of the specific changes that have to be made to make a story that was written in the 70s that's about technology work for you know an audience now well when you look at the old movie it it's so obviously dated and and just the medical equipment and and what we were able to we we locked out we were actually able to shoot in real uh working operating rooms we didn't have to build it again it came in we, we say okay it, it order to make a great look we have to get in and into real operating rooms rather than doing our own it just has a different uh feel to it and we wanted it to be realistic and look really technologically advanced so we ended up in a couple of hospitals in atlanta there they opened their doors to us but sometimes we actually had had to wait for actual surgery to be over before we could come in. We all had to be sanitized and we all had to wear scrubs and the equipment had to be cleaned off. Uh, um, but we did that gladly because what you get back is so much better than a set because you, I always say it's the, it's the 
irregular things that you don't think about that that are on a location it may be a doorway that's been blocked off and say why why are we building a doorway blocking it off but that's what real life is all about that's that's what a real working building looks like alteration has been made or plus the equipment the the operating equipment we there was no way we could have afforded to rent that uh, the fact we so we were working nights in there when when they were done with their surgery but that was a that was a small price to pay. Well, Ben, how do you feel about that as a cinematographer shooting on real locations like that versus having a set where you can move walls around and move doorways around and do whatever you want, put your lights wherever you want them? I mean, do you do you embrace those limitations or are you frustrated by them? There's obviously a diffi- it's it's more difficult, uh, and the temptation is to, you know, when you have the ability to to have a big port in the roof that you can bring light through, but that also changes the look of the picture. Uh, and, and takes it, I think, takes it away, as, as Mikhail was saying, takes it away from reality. And there's no doubt that there is certainly more challenges uh, working with a, with a practical location. But again, the decisions that you make, I think, based on that, bring something different to the picture, bring a different look to the picture. And, uh, you know, I tend to then use much more practical lighting, which gives you a, a kind of a bit more of an intimate feel rather than a, a broad brush um, over the head philosophy. So I think it actually it adds to the adds to the texture of the of the movie. And how about location? You said you were shooting in Atlanta, so I guess the movie was the whole movie shot in Georgia. Yes, the whole movie was shot in Atlanta, and originally uh, the original movie takes place in Boston. And uh, there was talk about going to Toronto to shoot as usual, and there were other options. And then we ended up in Atlanta. I said, hey, instead of saying Atlanta is Boston. Why don't we just make it Atlanta? So we actually gave the whole script a little southern twist, um, with some reference to the South, and that we actually are in Atlanta. We could, we could, and what a relief! We could actually shoot outside and see the street signs. It would be okay. And the license plates. It, that was such a change from you always chase and, and and try to make it look like something it's not. So that was that was wonderful. Was it one of those things where we, I mean, I'm assuming it was. Was Atlanta chosen for tax credits and stuff like that? Or Yeah, no, we, uh, Atlanta was chosen because of that. Uh, Sony Studios have a presence there, and they've, they've shot sh- several shows there. There's a great crew base. Actually, a lot of the crew has moved from Los Angeles. I mean, there's top-notch people. Some of the best in the business are there now, and, and we were able to get a lot of those guys. Well, Ben, when you're going on location somewhere like Atlanta to shoot something, I mean, how much, on, and on a movie like this where your resources are you know, limited, how, how much freedom do you have as far as your crew? I mean, how many of your people that you've worked with can you bring with you, and how many do you have to just are kind of imposed upon you from the area? Well, in this particular case, I mean, uh, with my luxurious uh, three-week prep, Pretty much, I inherited a crew. I inherited a crew that were working for the production company uh, in Atlanta. And luckily, uh, in about 85% of the case, they were fantastic. You know, we had, you know, little problems here and there, but really nothing to speak of. And, you know, as Mikhail was alluding to before, I think that, you know, by the general public, our jobs are viewed as incredibly creative, but the, the people management time and motion part of the job is massive and um, I take a lot of time in 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 really developing a relationship with people and I'm much more interested in people that not necessarily technically the best but have the best spirit and the best heart and the best work ethic because I think that you can drag a elicit a performance from them that's greater than than perhaps having a great guy with a bad attitude 
And um, these guys, for the most part, all had great attitudes. And so, and I'm sure at the end of this process, they were better technicians for it. Not that 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 we bring something great. It's just that that I think there's a management style where you can you can really have people participate in the process versus being androids to the process. Um, and and that's really what I try and foster as a DP. And and I think that that brings a whole lot more brings certainly uh, broadens your your idea your creative base because you're asking people to to think and not just do um and so yeah in this case we we i really didn't have time to interview anyone frankly um they were pretty much presented and and that's the way it was um and on, on other shows of course you know the whole i think the crewing thing that time is being taken away from us. The pre-production times are being taken away from us as DPs. And I think what a lot of producers don't realise is that that the chemistry, choosing the mix of people that you're working with is so important. And that that's not something you can do over the phone. It's not something you can do uh, in a day. It takes a little time. And But if you get that mix right, it, it really makes the whole show flow. It makes it faster, quicker, smarter. And, and just to put it in perspective, what Ben is saying... We sh- this is four hours of film we're talking about, and we shot it in 40 days with basically no overtime. Uh, that means a 12-hour day. So we were flying. I mean, there's no time to blink. And that's what it's like these days. And if, if you can live with that, I think you can do great great work. But there's really not a lot of time for discussions. It's not like you can massage it very much. It's you, Ben and I, have you look at each other, what do you think? Let's go. Uh, that's pretty much what it gets down to. There's not even how about over there, and and there's not time for that. Do you think there is, on in some way, an advantage to that in the sense that you know Clint Eastwood always uses this phrase where he says that if you think too much about something, you have the paralysis of analysis, and you should go with your first. I mean, do you think there there is a, an advantage at all to the you know tight I, schedule? I, oh, I'm sure there is. I think in many ways it's great to have a, a, some boundaries uh, because if you have unlimited resources there's no challenge really because then you just go back like Kubrick did go back and reshoot it the next day if he doesn't like what he did and you know how it is in tv there are no reshoots there are, it doesn't exist you may go down and, and and do an insert day at the end of once you have a final cut and say hey we need an insert of this that and the other in this case we didn't even have that option we you have to get what you get and if you don't get it you'll never get it and and that that's really where you need to be smart about your planning and using your B camera as a splinter unit, put, pushing them ahead. If you don't need them as a B camera, they can do something else. It's all about that. It's such a collaboration between the DP, the director, and the first AD. That's really the, the trio that, that sets the pace and makes sure you, it, it all happens. I, I think there's a lot of truth in the old adage of, you know, if you want something done, ask a busy man. Um, because I think your decision-making process speeds up as the demands are put upon you. And I think there's an, a certain adrenaline to this type of shooting that, frankly, it, it destroys you, but it's very addictive because you get big things done fast. And, you know, the amount of times that I've walked away from a day with Mikhail and thought, oh, my God, and you sit back and you think exactly what you achieved in that day, it's enormous. And it and it didn't look half bad, you know. And I think there's a there's a kind of a, a wonderful sense of... of um, accomplishment about that you know and I think so so I find specific to myself the busier I am the better decisions I make and 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 and, um, to illustrate that our last day of shooting 
where the the final set had finally been made ready because they were building that all the t- the time while we were shooting. Um, that last day, as we finished the day, I think we had an hour of overtime that day, the last day, hour, hour and a half, and one of the camera assistants turned around to me and said, do you realize how many sets we shot today? I said, what do you mean how many sets? We shot 18 sets today. And that's the first for me. That that was crazy. And I, I didn't had did not even have time to process. I just knew I had to get all these things or I would have an incomplete movie. Well, on a movie like this where you're shooting a four-hour movie in 40 days and you only have a few weeks of prep, what are, what are the most important aspects of pre-production for both of you? I mean, what are the things that you have to really focus on in those three weeks to make sure that you're going to get what you need when you, once you get to the set? Well, for me, there's three things. There's casting, working on the story, and locations. And many times I, I'm not comfortable till I have the locations. So I'd rather have the locations down before the casting. <laughs> Once I have locations, I know in my head I can start building a sequence. No, this goes there, this goes there. And that means you can do a, a schedule that way. Yeah, I, I would reverse the order. Obviously for me, locations are up front because they tell you, they tell me as a cinematographer what's, what's, what's up and what I need and, and how we're going to shape the environment. And on this show, as we've alluded to, you know, the environment shaped us to a, to a big to a large extent. Um, so yeah, for for me, it's it's definitely seeing the locations because that tells you the equipment you're going to need. That tells you uh, uh, the the people you're going to need, the the prep time, the rigging time, the all of those sorts of things. Well, and did was shooting in uh, Atlanta, aside from the the changes that that forced on the story. Um, how did that affect the look of the film? I mean, how is this a different looking movie being shot in Atlanta than it would have been if you had done it in Toronto or Los Angeles or wherever? Well, I've I've shot a lot in Toronto and I wasn't sure that we could have found as good locations there for this particular movie. There are great locations in Toronto, no doubt about it. We shot the company there and they, they had some great locations for that. But uh, we were actually able to find some fantastic locations in, in Atlanta. We were able to stitch it together. But sometimes we find a location which was too far away or then this okay, I would love to have that, but it's not going to work. So you have to make do with something you in one of the other locations. So many times you really have to. It's a trade-off. Atlanta obviously embraces you know filmmaking because to, to be allowed to shoot in a hospital OR I mean, that's pretty enormous, you know. Um, and so, you know, the City Fathers have obviously done their job and, and created a great environment for filmmakers to come and shoot there and, and have a lot of uh, corporate support. And that, that's important in terms of getting those locations. And, Ben, you mentioned that you shot with the Alexa uh, and that you seemed pretty happy with it. What were the uh, factors that went into the decision of using that camera? Uh, hi. This is an Alexa. You're using it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will say that Ben was one of the first people who uh, who used the D20. The D20 was sort of a, a very, very, very new when we shot the company, and it was like going back to Eastman Kodak 25 ASA. I mean, it was very, very yeah, slow. Really incredibly difficult. Yeah, we, because it was so slow, the sensor. It was like shooting film in the 50s, I guess. And and Ben had to light some major uh, night exteriors uh, in for Berlin. We shot it in Budapest. And that was a lot of work. And and you know how it is today with, with the sensor being as fast as it is. You get a lot of stuff for free. 
so to speak. I mean, you, you don't have to lie to your backgrounds anymore. They're already lit. You can live with here when, when, when it's so slow, you have to lie to everything. So uh, with the Alexa for, for this film, I mean, Mikhail, do you, do you know why that camera was chosen as, you know, the one that was imposed on the production? Well, it wasn't really imposed on honesty. I, I think it was the logical choice because, uh, I mean, I had done, I think one show before or two shows before with the Alexa and, and loved everything about it. I compared it to other cameras, uh, and I actually had the opportunity to cut cut material together because at the time, um, for one of the shows, the, the, at the time the uh, Alexa couldn't run 120 frames, so I had to get a different camera. When once I cut the two things together, I said, "Okay, there's no doubt in my mind that this is much more film-like, if you will." To me, it has a much greater latitude than any of the other cameras. I think maybe the new Sony F65 has a similar latitude. I haven't had the opportunity to work with it. I'd love to work with it because I'm just to try it out. But the form factor of the Alexa is so, it's so easy to work with. Yeah, it's a fabulous piece of kit. I've, I've just worked with it in the desert in Africa, and uh, it never missed a beat. It's a, just a terrific filmmaking tool, I think. And the sensor is very, you know, inverted commas, filmic. Um, uh, I think it's a it's a wonderful choice. How many cameras were you shooting with? Uh, we shot with two uh, A and B camera, and we had a third camera very occasionally to do some additional stunt type stuff. And your five D. And my five D. We used that a lot actually. Yeah. What what kinds of scenes did you use the five D for? Oh, we used it for point of view type work. She uh, uh, like a, the actress shot her own close ups. Her own close ups essentially. <laughs> Um, uh, so she she used it on a, her long her arm extended pointing back towards herself when she was in a drug induced state, um, and Mikhail wanted the feeling of the camera anchored to to the actor and and to have the world whiz around behind her while she was still in register, and um, you know we considered a, a brace, um, hard mounting it, but essentially. Time got away from us, and and that never happened. And well, we actually did the iconics once, where we put it on right. a brace, and and for some reason the the other setup worked much better. The handheld thing just made yeah. the background a little bit more messy, and um, yet yet kept her in the frame, and she wasn't perfectly in register, so it told the story of her drug-induced state a little better. Well, that leads me to another thing I wanted to discuss, which is, you know, this movie, something it has in common with Salem's Lot is it really just kind of takes the audience in the palm of its hand and squeezes, especially for the second half. I mean, it's very suspenseful. Now, obviously, some of that is inherent in the script, but in terms of ratcheting up the tension, what do you guys do visually? I mean, what's your strategy in terms of lighting and camera, camera movement and composition and things like that? Well, the story pushed it forward. I mean, it's all, it's kind of, if I may, it's kind of on the page, you know. And and we we were lucky that, you know, that, again, the production designer designed these fantastic sets that that had, uh, and the content and, and, and what was in those sets was incredibly dramatic. And so, you know, that kind of pushed the photography forward, I, I think. And I, th I think we also had our initial discussion that what you were talking about before. We always say, okay, when in doubt, go bold. You know, nobody's paying us to, to make it safe. Anybody can do that. So why don't we just go bold, take some chances? And Ridley, who's Ridley Scott, who's who's one of the executive producers, he's he's completely behind you when it comes to that. And uh, we didn't see that much of him, but he he did, you know, see dailies and what have you. And and I know he that's 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 his language. He likes to go bold. I mean, 
so so I think that, that take chances and sometimes uh, you lose, but most of the time uh, you, you don't regret it. But also, you know, to be one, it's wonderful to be supported in, in that and, and to have that that standing behind you and know that, you know, if you do take the chance, it's a much better option than than not. Did you guys have any other films in mind as, as models for what you were doing? Were there any other visual models, either films or even other visual references like photographs or, or paintings or anything like that? I, I don't think we ever discussed that, but a lot of it, you know, that's the, the great thing about digital. You look at the monitor and you go, hmm, and how about, what if, and, and, those are the moments you have where you where you kind of yeah sure let's do it that way and let's let's drop that or let's add that or whatever it happens as you do it and uh, I think it has a life of its own. Yeah, I'm yeah, always I'm very always wary. very wary of of when you're in a meeting and someone has a complete picture before they have the physical picture, you know, and uh, because they're not really allowing the environment to speak to them. And um, you know, we had a broad sense kind of color philosophy of how the sets were going to be. But then essentially, you know, Macau's got this great saying of you got to leave something for the day. You know, you can plan it, you can plan it to the nth degree, but then you're, you're ignoring what the environment may give you. And the actors. And the actors. You guys touched at, at some point earlier on the fact that um, this is, you know, it's a broadcast television, or I mean, it's cable, but it's still, it's a TV movie, so there are certain restrictions in terms of, standards and practices and how far you can go. And again, like Salem's Lot, you're making what's essentially a horror film for television. So, but you have to be beholden to whatever Annie's standards and practices are. And I'm wondering, do the two of you have to think about finding ways to evoke terror without being graphic? And if so, how do you do that? Well, um, there, there are usually two things that come in. Usually at, in, in the U.S., it, violence is fine, but sex is not, So and, and nudity. So that was my main concern, to dream up what we were going to do with these bodies that were supposed to be nude in the, in the book, uh, but obviously we couldn't. So uh, I worked with the um, costume designer on that. I said, can you come up with something that looks like an artificial skin of sorts? And he said, really? And he actually... It didn't take more than a couple of days. He came with this fabric that stretched completely uh, at, at, uh, adjusted to the body. And I said, well, that's it. Why didn't you bring me that right away? <laughs> you know, and, and that really, that was such a huge turning uh, corner to turn for me because that was the one thing that could have kept me awake at night. How do we deal with that? And, and we didn't have much prep. So um, that was such a happy... Uh, uh, I felt from that point on, I said that we can actually do this this way. But when it comes to gore, there really, there is some gore in it. It's not that much. We we had to cut some a few things down. Where um, A and E came back and said, "Look, uh, just can you just shorten that a little bit?" And I remember that from Salem's Lot as well, where. Um, they said, absolutely no flowing blood. So, of course, I made a machine that sprayed blood all over the place when the guy hits the bandsaw or whatever it was. And we presented the director's cut. And they said, mm, that's a little bloody, isn't it? Can you shorten it a little bit? Sure. So we took six frames off on, and shortened it. And they said, fine, fine. We never heard a word again. So, But, you know, CSI actually have set new boundaries for, for broadcast TV. I remember the first episode where they smack this artificial head with a golf club and say okay things have changed now you can actually do that uh, yeah csi miami and stuff like that is almost i mean it's like things that would have gotten you know george romero movies x rating yeah. in the 70s and 80s and now it's like on network tv um you know the it's amazing to me that you guys keep talking about how little 
time you had and 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 all that because it looks like a very expensive movie and i presume a lot of that also aside from the cinematography and the production design a lot of that has to do with the effects work in it very much so. um so i'm curious to hear about a little bit more about that a little bit more about what the effects work entailed and and ben how involved you get with the visual effects team on a movie like this i mean is that another area where the cost cutting kind of prohibits you from being as as involved as you would like to be or do you do you get to interact with the visual effects people? I think it's important to know the process and it's important to understand what, you know, Macau's intention is. Essentially, these guys are so good. Um, you know, as a cinematographer, I'm always going to ask the VFX supervisor, you know, what they need and, and how to present it best to them so that they can do their best job with it. And, you know, any, any super worth his salt will, will make sure that that happens. Um, but essentially, these, you know, Mikhail has such a long-running relationship, and I'm sure he'll talk about this uh, with these guys, that you feel so comfortable working with them. What are, what are some of the specific things that you do after talking with them uh, you know, on set? That, what, what is, how are some of the specific ways that that affects how you light a set, you know, knowing that you're doing it for certain visual effects? Well, I think if you're working with a really good house, it doesn't affect you. you know, that's the point. I mean, I think that... These guys in particular give you the ultimate creative freedom because they're not imposing upon you in, in terms of the way that the, that the elements that you're providing to the shot look. And indeed they're, they're, they're taking those elements and building a shot that's, that's sympathetic to that rather than the reverse. And Mikhail, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the visual effects team that you've worked with, uh, as Ben said? Yeah, um, the supervisor we had on, on the coma is the same that we had on the company. His name is Victor Muller from, from UPP in Prague. And um, as Ben said, I have a long relationship with him, and I, I just realized how, I mean, they're great, and to a point where I'm completely spoiled, because... Um, Sometimes with the speed you're going at, there is no time to put a blue screen up or green screen up. And you just uh, look over at Victor and says, sorry. And he says, don't worry about it. He said, can you just stick a piece of green behind her blonde hair that's blowing in the wind? That would really help us a lot. I said, of course. But that that's the kind of relationship. And, and a lot of the time we actually did it without a supervisor because they're fairly simple, simple stuff. Um, like the accident on the bridge also. I don't think there was anybody there for that. But um, I, I know what they can do, and they also know I'm not out to screw them in any way. I'm out there to make a great uh, show and make it look good, and, and I think that's probably also... Uh, I will always try to protect the image, obviously, because that's such a big part of what I do. I mean, and, and sometimes I know directors don't always do that. I've certainly been in a situation as a DP where the director said, well, don't worry about it. Uh, this, I think the two can coexist. The, the quality in performance and the quality in image, it, it has to coexist and must coexist. You can't just abandon one for the other. Um, but uh, to get back to the VFX, um, their, their contributions is that we, for instance, part of the Jefferson Institute, the exterior, you've seen the show, uh, is this building with wings on it, what have you. It's actually a part of an art museum that's sitting right in the middle of Atlanta, traffic going on all sides of buildings all over the place, and those wings don't, don't exist. There's a hill in front that covers part of the building. Well, we had to see the vents down below, you've seen that didn't exist so they put that in there's a cafeteria they had to cover i mean 
all that kind of stuff. And they just the first pass I get from these guys, I could put it right in the movie. Uh, and and that's not common. Uh, other stuff they did the the whole area area one as we called it, uh, where all the hanging bodies are there. That is something we shot in an old Sears warehouse where we actually used the structure of the building itself that exists, but there are none of none of all the tracks that was there. We had one track with three of these. Um, what do we call them? Body carriages. Yeah. yeah, body carriages on, and they replicated them, put them in, made them move, uh, and and that's the 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 sad thing about it is most of what they do is completely transparent, and right. people think you actually shot yeah, it. I never would have guessed that that uh, the Jefferson Institute was in the middle of a busy. You know, it looks like it's completely isolated. Yeah. Um, well, before we wrap things up, what's on the horizon for both of you? Do you know what you're going to be doing next, either? together or separately well hopefully we'll be doing something uh, I, I actually can't talk about it right now but but uh we should know by the end of today <laughs> what, what where it's going to be but it, it's probably be a, a small feature in canada or another project great well thanks so much for coming in and talking with me this has been jim hempel from american cinematographer magazine talking about coma with mikhail solomon and ben not This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 